News, notes, and Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 23rd, show number 36 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you with our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. We'll have our weekly Talk with Todd featuring Todd Zola discussing how to think about pitcher handedness, starting pitchers who could provide some useful production, mining for stolen bases, and more. In our regular Friday matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at the Cardinals' Adam Wright visiting Cincinnati and Mike Leak, and Kansas City's James Shields in Anaheim to face Matt Shoemaker. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about evaluating batting average outliers. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Very good to be here. Let's start off with some news on the injury front. Ryan Braun left the game on Thursday night in the fifth inning with what was called tightness in his right side, which isn't much to go on, but it sounds like it could be a recurrence of an oblique injury that put him on the DL for 14 games earlier this year, and it sounds like time back on the DL is a distinct possibility. So what are the ramifications of this news? Yeah, it does indeed sound like he may, may have come back too early, may not be quite uh, been quite ready. But uh, it, it could be a tweak of that oblique strain again. Uh, the last time he was on the DL, Logan Schaefer got a bit more playing time. And, of course, Logan Schaefer is nothing to talk about. Current to hitting 197 with no homers and one stolen base. Uh, a good defensive replacement, but not a uh, uh, not going to provide anything in fantasy league. So uh, that's what it looks like. Braun owners are going to have to have to wait a while. Braun was off to a pretty good start, but the DL time, of course, is cutting into his at-bats. Braun was certainly off to a slow start as far as stolen bases were concerned. I think he only had three uh, so far this season. And I, I wonder, do you think that it was uh, the oblique problem was affecting his ability to run? And in any case, was his decreased stolen bases a concern as far as somebody's hoping that Ryan Braun's going to be an elite level player? You know, I don't know. I think Ryan Braun is certainly getting to an age where he needs to, where, where a lot of players slow down. So uh, maybe it had something to do with the oblique. Maybe it didn't. Um, really hard to tell. I think, I think my, my sense about Ryan Braun is you, 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 uh, you want the power you, at this point in his career. You want the power. You want the batting average. And the, um, uh, the stolen bases are just kind of, uh, kind of, uh, something on top, you know? I suppose so. But boy, when he was stealing bases, he really was a tremendous elite level player, $40, $50 player. And once you take away those bags, and then now you start talking about an oblique injury, which also has a tendency to be something of a nagging concern. 
uh, boy, I, I don't know about Ryan Braun as a guy to target for the rest of this season at least. Uh, Dan Becker's Batter Buyer's Guide column looks at some possible speed faders this week. And in the National League, he has some harsh words for San Diego shortstop Everth Cabrera. This was surprising to me a little bit. He was top 10 in, st- in stolen bases last season. Why is Dan so pessimistic about Everth Cabrera? Well, you know, and Cabrera's not off to a bad start this year in terms of his stolen bases. I mean, he's got uh, he's got nine so far, and, and that's not too bad. Uh, and and there, uh, you know, he, he really has not been running uh, as perhaps as much as he as much as he could have been. Uh, San Diego has commented on that and said he, they hope to get him to run more. But uh, the thing that's going on with Everett Cabrera right now, one reason he was so good last year, fantasy wise, was. His batting average was up there along with the stolen bases. I mean, the guy hit the guy hit 283 and stole 37 bags, and so it looked like you could, you could really get something out of him this season, and and that was in part-time play given uh, given a PED suspension. But but this year he's not hitting nearly so well. His his batting eye is 0.15. Uh, he's not walking at all. His uh, he's not hitting the ball hard at all. Hard hit contact uh, is down at, is at 59. Uh, speed is at 115, so just barely above, I mean, above average, but not, not elite at all. So right now we're dealing with a guy who hits 238 and steals nine bags. Uh, you gotta worry about that a bit, you know? He may steal some more bases, but this is not the stolen base machine that folks were hoping to get when they drafted him. It's the walk rate that would concern me the most, Nick, because over the last few years, he's consistently been a 10% or higher, which is really good for a base field. It's exactly what you want. And his speed index has been in the 160s. Uh, 2011, it was over 200, with the league average being 100. And here he is now, as you mentioned, 116 for a speed index. So he's 16 points above league average, but his walk rate is way down. This is this looks like a lot of cause for concern, and of course that will mean people will start asking, is it some kind of hangover from the uh, PED situation? Yeah, you know, I mean, we, we would have thought when, when that first happened, I think the conclusion was, well, the PEDs probably aren't going to affect it too much. This is a speed guy, not a, not a, um, a power guy. But maybe it's uh, having had more effect on his performance last year in a positive way than we thought, uh, and certainly we're seeing a negative uh, a negative performance this year out of Cabrera. Yeah, and just to follow up on what you said, it's true that most people think of PEDs as a power-enhancing thing rather than speed, but in a lot of ways uh, there's injury recovery and the ability to stay in the games, as well as sometimes power doesn't necessarily mean home runs. You pointed out that his hard contact index rate is way off from last year. It was it was below league average last year at 88, but this year 59, which is a career low for him in that department, and maybe uh, you, know, you lose a little strength, it means you're not hitting those line drives with his much gusto or you're not grounding the ball sharply through the middle instead it's a weak more weekly hit which means a lower batting average on balls in play there's a lot of ramifications here i would be pessimistic about everett cabrera as well in the may 22nd facts and flukes column jeff tomich who does a great job at baseballhq.com asks if the cubs shortstop starlin castro might be back to his 2012 form if so that's pretty good form that's a 20 dollars plus player What's the verdict on this question? Yeah, it is indeed. I mean, you know, Starling Castro had a very bad year last year. He hit 245 and disappointed a lot of owners who were hoping to see him closer to 300 as he had been before. But and you and and you look at that, and this year uh, he he's certainly doing much better. His hard contact rate is up a bit from last year. Uh, his power is up a bit from last year. Uh, so I, I think Starling Castro looks like he's back. I don't think. Uh, 
we certainly expected him to bounce back given his age and his, his prior performance. Uh, and it certainly looks like he's, uh, he, he's bouncing back very, very well this season. It does, but I noticed that Jeff is not optimistic about Castro's capability to provide some help in stolen bases because he has a career stolen base percentage of just 64%, and a lot of managers are going to throw up the red light when they see a figure like that. And indeed, we're only projecting Starlin Castro for nine stolen bases, which is uh, a nice contribution, but it looks like he's batting cleanup, so maybe home runs and RBIs could be the real value here. Yeah, I think very definitely. I think as long as they have him in the cleanup spot, uh, RBIs are certainly something that uh, that may even exceed the projection that we've got. He's got 23 so far. We're only based on, on his history. We're only projecting 45 the rest of the year. Clearly, he's going to exceed that if he stays in the cleanup spot. In the starting pitcher buyer's guide column about pitchers who have changed the mix of their pitches, an interesting topic, Stephen Nickrand looks at Arizona right-hander Brandon McCarthy, and he really likes what he sees. So why is Stephen suddenly embracing McCarthyism? Well, at least he's not in the Reds, you know. <laughs> uh, Brandon McCarthy has seen a huge increase in fastball velocity. Uh, 90.8 miles an hour a year ago, 93 miles an hour this year. Um, and he's got a second second pitch. His, his cutter has become a legitimate strikeout pitch. So even though at this point uh, his ERA is up at 4.67, we're looking at a 3.13 xERA. Uh, eight, eight strikeouts per nine innings, only 1.8 walks, so a great command ratio. Right now, Brandon McCarthy is, is displaying elite skills and certainly a guy to look at. Two legitimate swing and miss pitches, um, an ERA that is, uh, that is inflated because of a low strand rate, uh, and a 20% home run per fly rate. Uh, you know, this is a guy that gets 55% ground balls, so even a 20% home run per fly rate, is not going to generate a whole lot of home runs when you're when you're putting only 24% of your balls in the air. So that's going to come down. Brandon McCarthy looks like somebody whose ERA could uh, could head toward that 3.13 xERA very very quickly. And if he's out on your waiver wire, certainly someone to take a look at. Yeah, it does look very promising. We're projecting a, a nice finish with a 367 ERA, 128 whip, and there, that looks like there could be room for improvement as well. The only drawback here, Nick, it seems to me, is going to be pretty tough environment to get wins a weak Arizona club. Well, that's true, I, you know, and that we, we know that's going to be a problem. So, But wins, of course, are kind of fluky anyway, so uh, you never know what's going to happen in that department. And finally, Nick, uh, Doug Dennis, our bullpen buyer's guide columnist, has a very interesting column this week called 35 Elite Relievers to Ponder. Now, the list includes many of the top current closers, uh, uh, Craig Kimbrell and and uh, his ilk, which you'd expect. But there are also uh, plenty of relievers here who might be under the radar in especially deep leagues. And one name that popped off the list at me was the Brewers lefty Will Smith. What is Doug seeing here? Well, you know, Will Smith kind of came into his own last year. I mean, he got ignored because he was a left-hander, but last year had a 3.24 ERA and a 179 BPV. And this year so far, we're looking at a 0.42 ERA, 31 strikeouts in uh, in 22 innings. So uh, Smith is really getting the job done. His, his control is, uh, is up a little bit higher than we'd like. He's walking four batters per nine innings. But a lot of ground balls, a lot of strikeouts. Uh, if you need somebody to help you in ERA and whip, Will Smith is certainly a guy to look at. He's not likely to get any saves, but, uh, but, but the, the ERA and whip categories he could really help in. And of course, uh, being a setup guy on a pretty good Milwaukee club this year might set him up for some vulture wins as well. It might indeed. He doesn't have any so far, but certainly a good possibility he could grab some vulture wins along the way. 
We should also mention uh, Will Smith was a candidate for the rotation during spring training before the Brewers signed Matt Garza in the offseason. So in a long-term keeper league situation, he might make a nice get on the upside of maybe he transitions to the rotation at some point in the future. That's certainly worth thinking about. I mean, here's a guy, he's only 24 years old. So a 24-year-old left-hander with those kind of strikeout numbers uh, and, and excellent control and a good ground ball rate, uh, certainly uh, would be worth something in the rotation. So if you're in a keeper league, uh, certainly someone that you might want to tuck away at this point. Right, a little bit of help now and a lot of help potentially later. Nick, thanks very much for doing this. We'll talk with you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League, and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jocko, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here. The biggest news this week in the American League by far is what's going on in Texas, where it's looking more and more like a mash station than a baseball team, and uh, they had all that trouble with their pitching staff. Now, a disastrous uh News, Prince Fielder is going to have season-ending surgery to repair a herniated disc in his neck. And Jurickson Profar at the same time has re-injured his sore shoulder, and that's probably going to make him, if not out for the season, certainly not a factor for most of the rest of the year. All of this was covered by Rod Truesdell in playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What do you and Rod Truesdell make of all this sad news for the Rangers? Well, beyond all of the player disappointments for anyone who owns them and, and Texas Ranger fans, obviously as uh, playing time analysts and fantasy owners, we look for the players who are going to take their places, uh, namely Mitch Moreland and Rugnet Odor and, and, and other players who stand to gain from a net playing time standpoint. Um, maybe Michael Choice, maybe Luis Sardinas in Texas. Uh, the thing to remember is that uh, the Ranger offense was no great shakes before any of this, so they don't have a lot of people ready to step in uh, right now. Um, this is a real tough call for fantasy owners. And an interesting time, anytime you have something like this happens, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of dominoes start falling, which create opportunity for fantasy owners. You mentioned Mitch Moreland. I'm sure he'll be one of the most added guys in mixed leagues. Moreland looks like a fairly obvious opportunity. Michael Choice, maybe. Now, the question I really have is, what do you think are the likelihood of Texas going after Kendris Morales to fill in the uh, missing slot in the offensive lineup? See, I'm, I'm not a big believer of this, and the reason is is because it's two weeks before the amateur draft. If they sign him before then, they're going to lose a draft pick, and, and I honestly feel as though with all of the pitching in this, in injuries, and now the injuries to an offense that wasn't very good to begin with, I think Texas is in rebuild mode. I don't see how they even uh, take a wild card spot this, uh, this season. They may try to present something different to their fans. Um, I think they're dead, and I think they go into rebuild mode. I think you might be right about that, and they have an opportunity to sell this to their fan base as the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, we hung in there through all the pitching injuries. We hung in there through Profar's injury. We, we backed and filled and pasted and did what we could, but losing fielder really might be the last straw. And if so, then maybe they have an opportunity, rather than signing an expensive long-term free agent like Morales, maybe this is their opportunity to say to their fans, look, you know, we gave it our best shot, now we're going to go into rebuilding mode, and maybe start bringing up guys 
who might be able to get uh, a taste of the major leagues in a lower pressure situation where wins aren't expected. And the guy I'm thinking of, of course, right away is Joey Gallo, who's been mashing the heck out of the ball in the minor leagues, has big-time power potential, which would uh, make the fans interested. He could play some first base. He could spell Adrian Beltre, who's had injury trouble of his own this year at third base. Um, what do you think that Texas could do in, the, in regards to starting the rebuilding process? Well, I think that's an interesting take, PD, um, and and the reason I think it might work is in, in low A and, and maybe the outer edges of double A, that's where most of the Ranger talent is right now, and they have a lot of it. They're not going to start trading off this talent to rebuild. The best thing they could do right now, particularly for the players that are performing like Gallo, is maybe give them a taste of, uh, of Major League action and maybe try to, excite, try to excite their fans that way. Because I think even the Rangers' uh, biggest fans and longtime season ticket holders don't believe that they're going to be competing this year. And uh, as I said, I think the opportunity that Texas has is to say to their fans, as I mentioned, look, we tried, you know, but this is just not going to happen because of all of the injuries. So if we assume that Texas is out on Morales for uh, financial reasons and contract length reasons and all the reasons that Morales is having trouble finding a job in the first place, not to mention the uh, cost of a draft pick, what do you think about the possibility that Seattle gets in on Morales? They are a surprisingly good-looking team that maybe has questions in the offense but their pitching's really good and looks like it's going to get better as they get back some injured players those young guys could seattle be in on kendris morales doesn't cost them a draft pick just like stephen drew was the obvious pick for boston and we're going to talk about that a little later um they've really given seattle a blueprint as well look uh, seattle's dhs this year are hitting something like 177 whereas uh kendris morales hit 277 last year with 23 home runs. Seattle is very well armed. They have Felix uh, at the top of their rotation. They have Iwakuma back. They're waiting for Paxton and, and Walker. Um, the rookie Elias has done better than expected. If Texas really becomes a punching bag in the AL West along with Houston, Seattle has got to think that they have a chance for the wild card this year. I would make a beeline for, for Kendris Morales in a heartbeat. Seattle is the only team that can sign Morales before the draft in two weeks that won't lose a draft pick if they sign him. I think this is an obvious move for the Mariners. It will be interesting, Jock, to watch what Seattle does and maybe what Texas does as an indication of what their front offices think of their opportunities to make the playoffs, especially Seattle, if they agree with you and with me, for that matter, that Seattle has a, a pretty good shot, it seems, given the uh, things that have transpired. Yeah, no, I agree. I think uh, I think Seattle, obviously, you look at what Boston did with Stephen Drew this past week, and uh, I think Seattle is the logical place uh, because once the draft ends, anyone can sign uh, Kendry Morales, and uh, th there will be a lot of teams trying to do so. Well, speaking of Seattle, let's look at them. Corey Hart, whom they signed in the offseason to shore up their offense. No surprise, he's on the DL. They've recalled Nick Franklin, which was detailed by Rod Truesdell in playing time today. You looked uh, in playing time tomorrow at this whole situation, and I'm wondering how does it play out, especially at shortstop, where Brad Miller, who is supposed to be a, a contributor, has really not been. He's been awful. Yeah, um, the only reason Miller is still up is because uh, uh, the primary shortstop at AAA Tacoma for Seattle, Chris Taylor, recently broke a finger in the minors. Taylor was having a heck of a year, and he's a better defender than either Nick Franklin or Miller, for that matter. Um, 
Franklin is no longer considered a shortstop per se. He's more of a utility, and he's having back issues. Uh, if you notice after his call-up, his, his first spot was DH. He's going to play a little outfield, while Miller was still at shortstop. So Seattle shortstop uh, bats are still up for grabs. Um, if, uh, if Miller is still struggling by the time Taylor is, uh, is ready to go down in AAA again, I wouldn't be surprised to see him demoted. You mentioned Boston signing Stephen Drew. The the Red Sox have really looked very bad the last little while. They lost uh, all six games in a homestand earlier in the week, including three to the Blue Jays, a, a division competitor that was right behind them and has, has uh, sailed by. The Boston offense has been really terrible, versus, especially versus right-handers. Will Middlebrooks is on the DL again with a broken finger. Their signing of Stephen Drew looks like uh, something, but how much of something? Yeah, I think they're trying to uh, recapture some of that 2013 magic when, when everything went uh, right. But in fairness, um, Drew hits right-handed pitching really well. He had a, an 876 OPS against righties last year, um, and Boston collectively has a 690 OPS against right-handers this year. Obviously, he's going to play shortstop against right-handed pitching at least. They're going to move uh, Xander Bogarts over to third base. Middlebrooks, for fantasy purposes particularly, is the one that's going to get hurt here, even though he's on the DL. He doesn't appear to have a, an everyday position when he returns. Um, it'll be interesting to see how far the Drew signing goes to resolving some of Boston's offensive problems. Boston also has pitching problems. We'll have to talk about those another day, but boy, that rotation doesn't look real solid. In Chicago, slugger Jose Abreu and this was quite a surprise. No sign of it coming. He's on the DL with a lower leg problem. He's replaced at first base by the veteran Paul Canerco. And they put closer Matt Lindstrom on the DL with an ankle injury, and he's going to be out for at least three months. So what happens with the closer situation? What happens with the uh, infield situation? A lot of uh, moving parts here in Chicago as well. Well, Abreu actually has had ankle problems pretty much throughout the year beginning in spring training, but they haven't been that serious. And and this is what the White Sox are hoping. They're hoping they can set him out for a couple of weeks. They put him in a foot cast. Um, and if he can't come back for first base, they're hoping he can come back in DH. Um, Canerco is obviously potential lightning in a bottle here. He's hit a couple of home runs in the last few weeks. He's looking creaky at age 38. and His indicators look dead. Um, but if, if you really need somebody to replace Abreu in deep leagues, he's a flyer. Belisario is kind of interesting right now. I, I took a look at his BPIs before you and I got together today. Um, he's got a 4.33 ERA to date, but he has a 66% ground ball rate, and this is fairly consistent with how he's done in the previous years. What isn't consistent over his first 27 innings pitch this year is the fact that he's only walked six hitters. His control is usually worse than that. This year, he's walking two batters for every nine innings, which is very, very good, and he has, has an expected ERA of 2. 9-5. Um, I like Belisario right now. I just don't know whether he can keep this up. I like him better than anything else the White Sox have, including Daniel Webb, who's walking about a batter an inning right now. So we'll have to see how this plays out. But right now, Belisario has saved the last couple of games, uh, even though he's given up runs in both of his save opportunities. So he's the closer until further notice. Well, you mentioned that uh, Belisario generates all those ground balls. The The trouble there for me might be the White Sox are not a solid defensive team, and a lot of those ground balls are going to sneak through, I think, in situations where they might not sneak through with a better defensive club. But as you said, who else have they got? The answer is probably nobody. And finally, Jock, uh, we'll go to your home base here in Los Angeles, Angels of Anaheim. 
the returns of David Fries and Cole Calhoun this week, and now we see Josh Hamilton is just around the corner. So the Angels are starting to shape up, and you talked about this in your playing time tomorrow space this past week. So who wins here, who loses here, and what does it mean for Raul Abanez, especially, who's really in a slump? Yeah, it's, this is going to be interesting. The big playing time loser immediately is going to be Colin Cowgill, who actually has played really well for the Angels, both, both offensively and defensively. He's having his best offensive stretch in the majors by far, uh, both from an on-base percentage, and, and he's even hitting above 290. Um, he's going to be around. Um, he's probably only now going to get a couple of uh, starts uh, a week against, um, against right-handed pitching. Um, there's a lot of guys who've played well that are going to get pushed off the roster. Grant Green and Efren Nabarra have both played well in part-time roles. Um, C.J. Cron has played very well. He's in a job share with Ibanez, platooning against uh, right-handed pitching. He's likely going to remain. Um, Ibanez has just gotten a vote of confidence from uh, GM Jerry Depoto, which tells me that he's got a month left to do something a little better than that current 150 batting average. Um, if that happens, um, you might see Green or Navarro come back. I think Crohn's, Crohn's, I'm sorry, I keep calling him Crohn, but it's Crohn. Um, C.J. Crohn is going to stick around. And if he does, that doesn't sound like good news for Ian Stewart, who's currently on the DL, but he uh, might not have a spot when he gets off the DL. Yeah, Ian Stewart was slumping. Um, he wasn't making very good contact before he left. I expect him to um, take a, a, a very long rehab in the minors, and he has an option left, so they may demote him. I think you're going to see first base covered now by David Freeze and his backup uh, John McDonald. I think uh, I think Stewart, unless he can unless he can snap two real quickly, is out of a job here. All right, Chuck. Thanks very much for talking with us again. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time and look at more American League news. Okay, PD. We'll talk then. Jock Thompson is BaseballHQ.com's Director of News and Analysis, and of course, he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's time to talk with Todd. Todd Zola coming up next. Stay with us at Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the morning. Take me out with the crowd. HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's our Friday News and Notes edition. Hope you're enjoying it. I'm Patrick Davitt. Hey, keep your eyes peeled this week at BaseballHQ.com for these features. Ron Chandler discusses his analytical shortcuts in his Fanalytics column. Brian Rudd puts Alex Gordon into the spotlight in this week's Facts and Flukes close-up. And bullpens analyst Doug Dennis looks at 35 elite relievers to ponder. And we talked about that column earlier in the show. Plus, we have our regular features, daily analysis of changes in playing time, performance validation in facts and flukes, buyer's guides, division outlooks, pitcher matchups, and much more. That's all on the site now or coming up at BaseballHQ.com, where you will always find fantasy intelligence for winners. 
Now it's time for our regular Friday Talk with Todd, and it's once again a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, ESPN.com, FantasyAlarm.com, MastersBall.com, ChandlerPark.com, and others. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Really great to be back, Patrick. Look forward to it every week. And I do too, and uh, you had a big week this week uh, getting all over the place at FantasyAlarm.com. You had a couple of columns I'd like to discuss. The first one was called Adjusting with Handedness use and misuse and you argue that many fantasy players are maybe misapplying the idea of how to manage pitchers and batters with regard to whether they bat or pitch left or right-handed yes uh it was specifically for the daily games dfs strategy but can it can be applied anytime you're setting a lineup or anytime you're setting either a weekly lineup and you're looking at the the matchups for the seven days or or daily lineups or leagues with with daily activations it's a way to gain an edge if you consider a player's stats to be a weighted average of splits when you have a split that's you know better one way or the other you can you, you can gain leverage now in dfs daily fantasy strategy the idea is that the salary for the player is set against his seasonal stats so when the split is greater or worse than you know the the overall number the the salary commensurate with that particular split will be higher or worse but we're looking at higher so that player is a value play the same idea can be applied just in general if you've got two players that are equal and you're just trying to decide which one to put in your lineup that week you can look at splits to see which one might have an edge and uh, we as we'll talk about there are some misapplications, there's some misassumptions made when looking at splits. Well, just to set the level for our listeners, you point out, and this is a consistent pattern over the last few years, but it, so far this year, right-handed batters facing left-handed pitching have a weighted on base average of 325, which is pretty good, and then it sinks down from there. The opposite, left-handed batters versus right-handed pitchers, still an opposite-hand situation, but that weighted on base average drops to 319. Then when right-handers face right-handers, they only get 306 for a weighted on base average. And left-handed batters versus left-handed pitchers, this is really surprising to me, uh, 294 weighted on base average, which is really low and certainly would make you think if I have a left-handed batter who's looking at a lot of left-handed pitchers this week and I have the option to sit him out for somebody else, maybe I ought to be thinking about doing it. Right, correct. Now, it also helps explain you know, pinch hitting and, and all that sort of thing and, and why managers might rely on relief specialists and that's sort of the whole loogie, the John Sickles, an acronym of loogie, a loogie, uh, did I say an acronym? Acronym of loogie, why it came about in the specialization. The numbers dictate that managers should look for handedness, at least for relief pitching, to gain an advantage. Uh, as far as in, in our lineups, the key, though, is remembering that it's all based upon the player's personal expectations. That, you know, I don't think you're going to want to sit Freddie Freeman if he's got a couple of games against lefties in, in a week-long schedule and play, you know, Mitch Moreland instead or something like that. It's all relative to the player's individual expectations, which is the, which is sort of where I went with the, with the piece. And that's, the misunderstanding of a player's personal expectations and when the splits are real. Uh, like anything, you need a certain amount of sample size for the numbers to be real. And 
what I found is people giving out advice for DFS Daily Fantasy, assuming splits are real, and they're really not yet. Uh, everything needs to be regressed to what's expected, and it's just a matter of what's expected. For a veteran player, uh, and this information is found in in the book by uh, Tom Tango and, and, and Michael Littman and, and Andrew Dolphin playing their percentages, you need 3,200 plate appearances, 2,200 of which against righties and 1,000 of which against lefties, before your handedness splits are real, before you own them, before you consider the player's personal splits to be what they are. Before that, you need to regress to the league norms, which you just, which you just stated, with the, the 325 and 319, et cetera. Uh, if a player has fewer than that number of plate appearances, you can't use his season to date stats, especially, and, and say, well, I'm going to play this guy because he's really good against lefties or righties. If he has fewer than those 3,200 plate appearances, you at least need to re regress it towards league norm uh, to adjust expectations. Once you're past that, 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 that threshold, it is what it is. The example I used in the piece was Alex Rios, and he's been around long enough that his WOBA uh, against left-handers is, is much higher than it is against righties. And not only that, proportion-wise, it's higher than the league average would be if you compare it to the league average WOBA. So he's especially good uh, to use against a left-handed pitcher uh, since the advantage you gain is even more than you would over, you know, league average. Whereas if even if you look at a guy like Mike Trout, he doesn't have the 3,200 plate appearances yet. So you, you can't use his to-date splits or another, another player, you know, an Eric Hosmer or someone like that. You can't use their own splits yet. You have to regress them towards what's expected globally and then temper your expectations accordingly. You also point out that you need to be careful when you're making these adjustments when you're looking at platoon players because their splits are going to be a little bit off the the league norms because they just don't face their same-handed pitchers often enough to, to develop any kind of reliable baseline. Right. What it is, if you consider their own stats to be a weighted average with the denominator being versus lefties and versus righties, a player like Matt Joyce, a renowned platoon player, will face 90% or so right-handed batters. You know, there, there's an occasion where a reliever's brought in, a left-handed reliever's brought in, and they may not want to bench him because they assume that, you know, by the ninth inning, the righty closer is going to be in and they want Joyce's bat in the lineup or, or something like that. So there aren't, it's not exclusive. But when you, if you break down his WOBA or whatever number you want to break down into a weighted average, in, and if you have another player with the exact same WOBA, uh, and the, it's a regular player, when you look at the components, the opposite-handed component will be better for the player that's a regular because it's being weighed down more with the bad numbers against the same-handedness pitcher. So again, it all has to, it's all relative to uh, does the player own the split or not own the split based upon his tenure in the league, but but still too many times stats are looked at and then you know I'm going to play Matt Joyce because he's playing against a right-handed batter and it's almost like you're double dipping his numbers his WOBA is what it is you can't improve it even more because he's facing a right-handed batter whereas you can do that 
say if Alex, if, if Alex Rios or someone is playing against a, if it's right-handed hitters playing against a left-handed pitcher, you can increase his more because approximately 30% of his playing time came against handedness pitchers that weigh it down. It's hard to, hard to explain, but it, it, if you think about it in terms of weighted averages, it becomes a little clearer. Now, you mentioned uh, when we first started talking about this, Todd, that this really applies best in a daily game situation where you're making these decisions and they're very granular. But there, well, I'll ask you, are there any lessons for traditional full-season fantasy gamers, uh, maybe even as far as what kind of hitter you want when you're going into your draft? Uh, I've thought about that. As as I'm writing about it, I've sort of made a note to to think about that, and that does bring it back to is the player you know i think it's going to have to do as a player a veteran or is he not a veteran because if a, if a player with fewer than those 3200 plate appearances is showing some extreme splits and it doesn't have to just be woba that could be home versus away or some other measure of, of splits that are relevant i think you need to regress that towards what's expected of a player, you know, without a number of samples, without sufficient sample size. Uh, you know, the, the, a simple example could just be batting average runners in scoring position. If if all you do each year is take a weighted average of a player's runs batted in, that year that Delman Young had you know, 120 or whatever it was, uh, it, it just or even Alan Craig last year, uh, it's it skewed because the you know batting average of runners in scoring position needs to be regressed towards league average. It's not a stat that can be controlled. So I think there is a certain element of of this that can be applied to season-long projections. But at the end of the day, if the player's been around long enough, the numbers are the numbers, and that's what's more important. But you can, I think you can find edges, uh, fringe players, platoon players, that sort of thing. I think you can, and the reason you know, it's a, it's most relevant, and even in a game like 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 Ron Chandler's monthly game, because it's against a salary. Anytime it's against a salary, and the salary is set using the entire average, weight, you know, not the not the portional weighted average, that's where you gain the advantage. And I think that's that's what the daily games and Ron's game can be most applicable. But I can see where it can come in handy if I'm looking at Matt Joyce or another platoon or, or, or marginal player and looking at their weekend's worth of matchups and deciding which one to play, how many games against lefties and righties and whatnot. So there, there is some significance in, day, in, in regular fantasy. And uh, before we leave this topic, what about guys who are reverse split type players where the rare batter who performs better against his same hand pitcher? That's the, yeah, that's the, uh, the other part of it. And that again has to do with how long is the player in the league? A lot of it's, but you know, daily fantasy. You're trying to get an edge. You're trying to figure out how you can set your lineup and and be better or different than the other person. Especially in these tournaments that have literally thousands of players in them, you need a differentiation point. And if someone's looking at, so someone thinks out there, well, this guy's not going to play uh, Paul Goldschmidt because he's facing a right-handed pitcher. Oh, but look, Goldschmidt's got reverse splits. Well, you know what? Goldschmidt hasn't been in the league. Paul Goldschmidt hasn't been in the league long enough to own those reverse splits. Uh, he's getting there, but he still hasn't had the requisite 3,200 plate appearances. It's around five or six full seasons. He hasn't been in the league five or six full seasons. 
So uh, you've got to at least regress. I'm not saying you need to say that his splits should be completely reversed, but you do need to regress them towards the league norm so that the impact of him playing against a righty isn't maybe quite as strong as his splits might show. And I think that's what people do. Is they, they, I think that's the way people try to gain an edge now is look for reverse splits. On the other hand, if the player's been in the league for five or six years and has got the requisite plate appearances, this is where you can use reverse splits to your advantage because someone may shy away from a player if all they do is look at lefty-righty. Oh, I'm going to ignore this guy, lefty-righty. I don't care. And it turns out he does have reverse splits. You could gain, you know, he might be able to help you or, or gain the advantage over his salary that day. And real quick, uh, we're, we're just talking about hitters. Pitchers, because of their, you know, they, they, their arsenal, their, their, their pitches, their, their splits could be real. Their reverse, you know, a pitcher, a right-handed pitcher might actually better, be better against a left-handed batter or vice versa because they can, the, the pitches that they throw and the location, how they throw them, can have a, a direct influence on the outcome. Uh, batters tend to, you know, cluster around global, whereas the pitcher's uh, reverse split is much more important. And just to be absolutely clear about this, nobody's ever going to suggest when you're looking at these batter splits that uh, you should assume that because of the right-left differential that you should sit Miguel Cabrera so that you can play Matt Joyce. I mean, there are... The, these are marginal decisions, not not the course high-level decisions. Right. It's all based upon – it all starts with the player's expectations. And then you tweak their expectation, you know, depending on how granular you want to get. You can tweak versus the pitcher, versus home, versus away, uh, that sort of thing. It, but it all begins with a baseline player expectation. And, yeah, and it's going to take a real big situation for Joyce's baseline – to be raised above Cabrera's baseline, uh, you have to, you know, Miggy would have to, you know, lose a bet and have to bat one-handed with his eyes closed or something like that for for that to occur. Uh, but uh, yeah, ex- that's exactly right. It's it's the player's personal talent is the number one factor. The rest are just sort of tweaks and margins at the uh, uh, adjustments at the uh, at the margins. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, talking with Todd Zola. And Todd, uh, also at FantasyAlarm.com, you had a column called Pitching In that was titled Better Days Lie Ahead about starting pitchers, 10 of them, who could provide some useful production for the balance of the season. Uh, first of all, how did you do it? I, I, nothing revolutionary here. Sometimes you've got to go with the, the cliche and the tried and true, just look to see what pitchers might be their surface stats, especially recent surface surface stats, might not be up to par. So if all you're doing is looking at ERA and all you're doing is looking at WHIP, you might you know you, the you, the cringe factor is pretty high. But if you look dig a little bit deeper, their uh, their peripherals suggest better days lie ahead. You know it's a standard standard analysis at this point, uh, but it's it's necessary sometimes. I'm at the point now where I'm trying to look beyond the standard analysis to try to to try to be the smartest guy in the room. But sometimes you got to take a step back and and just you know what let's let's not get too far ahead of the curb and let's go back to you know you know Ocam's razor. It's still it's still the way to go. Make sure you're doing what everybody else is doing so you don't fall too far behind. So these are just ten pitchers that names are well known and I'm sure you'll see them on the list. But I picked them out as guys that. 
I'm looking short term. I'm not afraid to start these guys. If they were, uh, in a, somebody might, you know what, I'm going to put this guy on my bench until he gets a good start or two. That always bothers me because what you end up happening is the bad stuff was on your roster while the good stuff was on your reserve. And what you did, you should paid for a season-long performance. And most often, that's what's going to get. You're going to get. But you're not going to realize that because you had some of the good stuff on your reserve. So the point was, don't bench these guys. You're going to miss out on the good stuff. Well, let's look at an example or two. Uh, what about the Kansas City Royals' Jason Vargas? I mean, his his start for the year looked a little out of character for Basically, he's been an innings eater for most of his career. He, he started off very well in April, uh, 240 ERA. That's up to 430 in May, and that's why people are panicking or getting getting worried about Jason Vargas. Walk us through, when you look at a guy like Jason Vargas, he's no star. He's He hasn't had a lot of success in his career. He's been just a middling, mediocre innings eater, like I said. What's the deal with Jason Vargas? Well, again, we looked at, looked at his uh, strikeout-to-walk rate, and at the time... Of the piece, he had 17 strikeouts versus three walks in his previous three outings, and he threw a little more. He threw 18 and two thirds, so it's about a batter an inning, and about one walk. You know, one walk in each of those outings, which to me, you know, six six strikeouts and one walk in a six inning game should give you pretty good results if you continue to do that down the line. Now, he was hit a little. He he is a guy. We talk about BABIP, and, you know, we talk a little bit that BABIP isn't all bad luck. You know, high BABIP, there's some bad pitching involved. We've learned that over the years. It's not completely happenstance. And a guy like Vargas, because he isn't dominating, is going to get hit hard on occasion. But the number, the numbers that I saw, he was hit, you know, he was, you know, probably some bad pitching, but it wasn't all bad pitching. And the number that really stuck out to me was, at least recently, his home numbers were, were horrible. And he's pitching at one of the best pitching parks there is. It was just a small sample size blip. If nothing else, you know, the numbers are just going to normalize at home. That's what we talked about before was, was small samples and you need to regress towards expectations. And the expectations at home were much better or are much better. And Vargas is a good example because like you said, he's not the biggest name. So someone might think, oh, geez, I got a great April. I'm going to cash out because in May, I don't want to, I don't want to get it before it gets to be too bad. Well, I don't think it's going to get to be too bad. You know, he, Vargas, he's not going to win the league for you, but he's certainly a guy that you can keep in your lineup, especially at home. Uh, just for stability, just to give you some good numbers, build you a foundation so that when you have to maybe take chances later, you've got a, a solid foundation of ERA and whip, uh, that, if you do happen to choose poorly, it's not going to hurt you too much. Well, Vargas was one of the pitchers in your piece, Todd, uh, that was among pitchers that probably are rostered in most leagues. But you also digged a little deeper for some uh, for some pitchers who are probably not rostered in mixed leagues and maybe not even in, in only leagues. And the name that jumped off that list was, for me, Jacob Turner, a, a guy that a few years ago was a top prospect. He's kind of not lived up to his expectations, but you have him on your list as a guy that maybe we should be looking at despite a 659 ERA. Right. His, his, his ex-fip, it's still, again, at the time of the article was 3.7. I don't, he may have had an appearance since I wrote the piece, but I mean, a 3.7 isn't great unto itself either. It's, I don't know that it's mixed league worthy, but he is a guy 
that can be used at home. The Marlins Park is one of the best pitchers parks in the league. And I know that the, the party line is don't chase wins, you know, just go for skills, don't chase wins. But if you, I've done this before and I, I did this for Fantasy Alarm. If you do the old Bill James Pythagorean wins theorem based upon a player's ERA, and his team's expectations of runs, and you come out with a projected number of wins, and then you correlate that to the number of wins that he actually got, the correlation is is a little is pretty good. So when we we talk about this whole, you know, don't chase wins. I mean, take take a look at Jeff Samarja, for instance. That's he's sort of this year's this year's uh, poster child for don't chase wins. Better pitchers can get wins. On better team, you know, the team, you have a better chance of getting a win if your team scores runs and you don't give up runs. It's not guaranteed, but neither are getting RBIs if you get hits. And you know, neither is stealing if you get on base. I think sometimes we overlook that and, and we give too much credence to the whole wins or luck sort of situation. This is just a roundabout way of saying the Marlins has a better offense than people think. And if you're using, I can't get it, I don't want to get wins for, because of Turner think twice because at home especially the Marlins are scoring runs and you can get wins out of them too. And finally Todd you you had a column at ESPN.com looking at stolen bases and I think you made uh, to start a very interesting point about the influence that top stolen base guys can have in the category as opposed to guys who are big home run hitters. Maybe you could start by explaining what you mean when you wrote that. Okay, here it's interesting. This is a very, very simple math, and we've talked about this. I've been talking about this for a few years, and it's kind of cool. If you take the total number of home runs hit and the total number of stolen bases uh, accumulated, a smaller number of players contribute to a larger number of the steals. That you know, the the they're focused. The steals are folk, they're focused upon a smaller group of players. And since there are fewer steals in the pool, then a player, a top steals guy can have a greater impact or influence on the standings than one of the better home run players, uh, out there. And there are fewer steal specialists out there, uh, to begin with. So getting you know, in one, one player can influence the steals category more than one player can influence the home run category was the, was the main point. And the category is sort of unique unto itself in that nature. Uh, you know, it comes down to category management and where you are and that sort of thing. But, you know, the, I think there were two ways to look at it. The other way would be, uh, 25% of the player population makes up or it takes the 50, 54 players it took to make up 50% of all steals, whereas it took 108 hitters to make up 50% of all homers. There's just a couple different ways to break down the numbers so that you can get a real feel for how individual and, and singular the steals category is and how much one player can impact the standings. 
Yeah, when I read that, the first thing I thought of was every year you get a guy like Jacoby Ellsbury or somebody like that who's in the 50 to 60 stolen base range, and it's relatively rare to have a home run hitter in that range at all in the first place. And then in the second place, the home run hitter who hits, even if he does hit 50 home runs, is only contributing into a pool of 4,000 home runs, whereas a 50 stolen base guy is contributing into a pool of 2,000 stolen bases. Those aren't the exact numbers, but really when you talk about that much smaller of a D denominator and a same size numerator, you're going to see that the uh, impact of the stolen base guy has to be a lot bigger. Right. And it's not necessarily, I mean, you, the example we use, the example you use 200 to 4,000, that it's twice the impact. It, it's, it has to do with different differences in the standings, uh, how many stolen bases between relative spots. And it's not so, it's not you know, twice as many. The gap between relative players and home runs isn't twice as many as it is in steals, but it is such that the gap, you know, it, it is smaller so that a play uh, between, between steals, because there's fewer of them. So a player can get you more points. And again, you know, as we'll talk about, I'm sure as we keep talking about managing standings, we're talking sort of big picture average wise. Ultimately, it comes down to where you are in your league. And we can say that the home run gap is bigger than the steals gap on average. But in your league, you know, you may have 120 homers and there may be a guy with 121, 122, 123. So you may be able to gain four points. Uh, you know, but it's still worth sort of the point of the year where you throw all that aside because too much can happen and you're still looking to just accumulate the most stats that you can and Getting, if you have the ability to get yourself a stolen base impact player now, get those numbers now because by the end of the year it's going to help you manage your team a little bit better. You also point out in the column, Todd, that the way that the teams in Major League Baseball are run is having a more and more outsized effect on how stolen bases get distributed. And we talked about this earlier when you did uh, some research on this topic about how managers are being, and teams through their managers, are being much more circumspect about sending guys or putting up the red light or the green light, depending on their stolen base percentage, because increasingly, due to sabermetric research and other kinds of research, they understand the value of an out and running a guy into an out because he's only a 65% stolen base guy is a disaster from the point of view of runs expectation and wins expectation. Yeah, further, I'm, I'm going to follow up on this research on, on as, a, as a harbinger uh, in the near future on Baseball HQ. Sort of the next step, I looked in season, and as sort of a tease, what I found was there's a correlation between each team's attempts in each team's success rate. And it's been that way for the past three years. So my take-home message of that, and then I looked at April. In April, there was almost no correlation, which tells me that it takes a month or two for a team to realize its personality, to know if it can steal, to know what its numbers are. And if the team isn't running very well, they're going to they're gonna slow down. And if the team is successful and their success rate is above the 75% threshold that, that's generally accepted as the break-even point, that that team is going to run more. And the reason being because by the end of the year, the numbers show that there's a really good correlation between attempts and between success. And again, in April, the correlation hasn't been that good, not just this April, but all Aprils. So that, you know, that tells me 
what I'm, what, and this is what the, the research will be about is let's find the teams that have the really good percentages, but maybe aren't running as much yet because the data says they're going to run more. Because at the end of the year, there's going to be a correlation. The only way that correlation can, can, can transpire is if the teams stop running that aren't running well and teams run that are running well. So let's find the teams that are, that are against the grain right now and let's find players on those teams that can run or, you know, as a, as a way to target potential stolen base candidates. And what we'll do for HQ is we'll do it towards the middle of the year and we'll just, we'll, we'll temper the, the, the theme will be, players to help you in steals over the second half. Well, that'll be something to look forward to. Now, you make mention of a something of an anomaly in this overall um, construct of how stolen bases work in the big leagues, and that is the Detroit Tigers this year have a 73% uh, stolen base success rate, which is relatively low, yet they are second in baseball in the stolen base attempts, which seems to run against the grain, but there's a huge change at the Detroit Tigers that you have to take into consideration, they changed managers. Right. And the Brad Osmus versus Jimmy Leland, and whether it's whether it's Osmus trying to change the culture or, or have his own personality or, or whatever whatever it might be, it, it may be lack of, of Prince Fielder in the lineup and and so therefore they feel they need to run, et cetera, et cetera. Or it could very well just be the presence of, of Rajah Davis who uh, you know, is one of the better base dealers in the league and has, has played a lot more so far because Andy Dirks has been hurt. But for whatever the reason, I think the Tigers are running a lot more. And my take home message there is a guy like Ian Kinsler, who showed he could run a little bit with Texas, but then slowed down is going to steal some bases. Uh, shortstop, the kid Romine, who is in there because of his glove. But when he does get on base, he does have the ability to steal. So in a really deep league, if you're looking for your middle infielder and he's on the waiver wire and you need some steals, uh, Romine is, is a possibility there. Uh, when Dirks comes back, assuming he can play, he can run a little bit. And the, these guys are going to run. And, and, and at least, at least right now, anyway, they're just, I don't, Asmussen, he's a catcher. He's a smart guy. You'd think that he would be more in tune. With the whole sabermetric run expectancy matrix and that sort of thing, but apparently they're not. And uh, you know, Austin Jackson is another player. So I think for years we've expected Jackson to run more, and said, "Ah, he's never going to run under Leland." Well, he's running a little bit more now. So these are the players that I'm more likely to uh, target. And you know, Kinsler. You know, you get Ian Kinsler for other reasons, obviously, but. I'm expecting him to continue to run at a slightly elevated rate. And, you know, you, when you're in your trade talks, you don't have to mention that. You know, you can think that, but you can be targeting Ian Kinsler for, air quotes, other reasons in the back of your mind saying, yeah, and he's probably going to get me 20 steals too. And we should note that in a relatively short sample in this season, 73% success rate for Detroit is not that far off the assumed or, or widely accepted break-even point of 75. I mean, they, they throw in a couple of stolen bases, uh, have a good week of stolen bases, they're going to be above 75 pretty quickly. So it's not like they're, uh, they're running at 65% and destroying rally after rally. At, at this point, they're pretty much breaking even. And if you pick your guys 
if you're the Detroit Tigers, maybe individually you have guys like you mentioned Rajai Davis, he's 14 for 16. Why wouldn't you send him almost every time? Because it's almost certain he's going to get the base, he's going to advance, and he's going to improve the chances of your team scoring runs and winning games. Yeah, and I think, and I have no proof, and you know, we're both we're both numbers guys, and we try not to use anecdotal, uh, you know, evidence supporting some of our our our, our work. But it seems to me that that steals are, are weird. You take a lot of players that are just having good years in general, and their steer their steals totals. Not only of the, you know, Curtis Granderson comes to mind a couple years ago. He had a great power year, but his steals numbers also were way up. Mark Reynolds several years ago did that. Steals is a weird category. It's not just skills. It's not just how, you know, how good a steals guys you are. There's, there's the manager element, the psychological element. The point I'm getting at is when you got a guy like Raja Davis on your team, the whole team mood, the whole team philosophy can change. And the same in LA with, 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 with D Gordon running. Some of these teams that have got one or two outstanding base deal, the Yankees with Gardner and Ellsbury, their success could be contagious and, or at least somewhat allow some of these other players to run, at least initially. Uh, and I think, you know, it, it's more anecdotal and, you know, sometimes I get too stuck with the numbers and, and don't, go with my gut enough on this sort of thing. But I think that's what's happening too is uh, Davis and, and, and players like that are changing the team uh, feel as far as uh, stolen bases go. And I think, real quick, I think a team to look for going forward is, is the Indians who are stealing at a pretty good rate and Terry Francona having come from the Red Sox know a lot about this run expectancy. And I think at some point – they're going to realize that they're going to need to pick up their pace a little bit more to run, to score some more runs, and I think they will. So I'm looking at some Indians as kind of a harbinger of, of what might to come as far as examples of players. I'm personally looking at some Indians uh, as, as, a, as a team to look at to get more steals going forward. And the irony is uh, they have a great percentage, and Michael Bourne isn't even contributing to that. Yeah, I know. He's on my tout team, and uh, I wish he was contributing more. I'd like to return briefly to Austin Jackson. Uh, a few years ago, in 2010, when he was age 23 with the Tigers, he had 27 bags and only six uh, caught stealings. So that's an 82% success rate, 81% the year after, and uh, again in the high 20s, low 30s for attempts in a similar amount of opportunities. Then in 2012 and 13, all those numbers fall off. He, st he attempts... Uh, dropped down to 21, then 12. There was injuries involved there as well. And his success rate goes from the low 80s to the high 50s. And then 67% in 2013, back up to 86% this year. When you look at an individual player like that, how do you square the circle when there's so much variation in, in what looks like a, a guy who should be stealing bases regularly and isn't? Yeah, that's the, the more you know, real curious to me was the drop in success. And, you know, inherent in all is, is Jim Leland. And, and in those years that the numbers dropped is, is when the team was just, you know, bashing the ball out of the ballpark left and right. And running wasn't a big part of their game. Uh, there was also a change in lineup order where, where Austin Jackson was going from hitting at the top of the lineup to hitting down towards the bottom. And it, it, it could, it could be something to the effect of when he's hitting more towards the bottom, the, the eighth and the ninth batters are up and the, the pitchers might be paying more attention 
to Jackson and, and, and keeping him on and throwing more fastballs, figuring that the eighth and ninth hitters won't do as much damage if, as if they throw the fastball to, to Prince or they throw the fastball to Miggy. And, and, uh, you know, so there could be something to that, that, that effect as well. But, um, yeah, I think injuries also played a big, a big toll. But anytime you put Jimmy Leland in the equation, I think, you know, you sort of have to just, part of it is just say it's, it's Leland. But I don't know, especially the year that he was 12 or 21. That was, you know, back in 2012. That's just a terrible, a terrible, uh, percentage rate for, for a guy that should be able to steal. It could just be that, you know, they're just not picking and choosing their instances to run very well. Um, but to me, that's why he makes such a great Austin Jackson, such a great target because there are people that are still so fixated recency bias on the past two years. And this year he's six out of seven. He's not running a ton, but when he has run, he, you know, six out of seven is a very good, good success rate. But like you said, if one of those was a caught stealing, he's six out of eight and he's exactly at the average. So we've got to think about the sample size a little bit, but, um, he's a guy six deals a quarter way through the season. He's easily on a pace, you know, from middle 20s. Could he get 30? Yeah, he may even be able to get 30. Well, from your lips to God's ears, I have him in a only league, and I could use the the extra bags, that's for sure. Uh, Todd, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again next week, and, of course, we'll be uh, looking for you all over the Internet. And you'll find me. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, FantasyAlarm.com, MastersBall.com, ESPN.com, and elsewhere. And luckily for us, he appears every Friday here on Baseball HQ Radio. Our Baseball HQ commentaries are next. Stay with us for pitcher matchups and master notes on Baseball HQ Radio. Smith corks one into right down the line. It may go. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time for our regular Friday commentaries. I'm on deck with Master Notes, and we lead off the inning with our matchup segment. Remember, our Baseball HQ matchup ratings look at every starting pitcher matchup by pitcher skills, recent performance, and the strength of the opposing team to arrive at a matchup rating from plus 5 to minus 5. We recommend pitchers with matchup ratings of 2.0 or higher, while we warn against pitchers whose ratings are zero or worse. Everything in between? Well, that's a risk versus benefit play you'll have to make up your own mind. Now looking at the Cardinals' Adam Wainwright visiting Cincinnati and Mike Leak, and Kansas City's James Shields in Anaheim to face Matt Shoemaker, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. This week, let's take a second look at some surprising matchup ratings and see if we can make some sense of them. Would you expect Cardinals ace Adam Wainwright to have his matchup rating matched by Mike Leake in Cincinnati on Sunday? Wainwright is coming off a one-hit shutout and has three PQS fives in his past five starts. His matchup rating is 309. Leake has two fours, two threes, and a two. His matchup rating is 302. What gives? Our pitcher link for Leake offers some clues. At home this year, Leak has a PQS 5 and two PQS 4s. And he had a PQS 4 in his start against the Cards in St. Louis this year. 
That's four PQS dominant starts thrown into the formula. Wainwright has a PQS5 in his start against the Reds this year, and he had two more PQS5s against them last year. But he also had a PQS1 and a PQS0. So that's three PQS dominant starts and two PQS disasters. Now you can see why their matchup ratings are similar, but with the edge going to Wainwright. In the American League on Saturday, Angels right-hander Matthew Shoemaker is at home in Anaheim to face the Kansas City Royals and their ace, James Shields. A sure thing for Shields, right? Wait a minute. Shields has a matchup rating of 169, and Shoemaker has a matchup rating of 329? What's up with that? Over his past five starts, Shield has an average PQS score of four. And Shoemaker? Aha! He's had only two starts. A PQS 4 followed by a PQS 5, but a prime example of small sample sizes skewing statistics. If you go to the pitcher link for Shoemaker, you'll see what our American League analyst Jock Thompson wrote. Shoemaker is a 28-year-old journeyman who relies on command of subpar stuff to survive and shouldn't be picked up regardless of format. In the minuscule sample of 11 innings work over his two starts, Shoemaker has been blessed with a hit rate of only 19%. He may be an angel, but Shoemaker is not an ace. It should be safe to give the nod to Shields in this one. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. If your league rules or format let you take advantage of pitcher streaming, then you need to check out daily matchups reports, as well as the exclusive Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups tool, only at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. I'm up in the rotation this week, and I'd like to talk about my step-by-step -step analysis of batting average outliers. As we hit the one-third mark in the 2014 season, we've seen some extraordinary performances. Some players doing way better than we expected, others doing far worse. In this edition of Master Notes, I'd like to take you on a quick walk through the basic analysis I use to get a start on sorting out outlier performances that might be real from outlier performances that might not. In the interests of time, I'll just look at the batting average category. When I compare 2014 batting averages of players with their batting averages combined for 2012 and 2013, I find 14 players whose batting averages are 50 points or more higher than their batting averages of the last two years, and three who are 100 points or more above those baselines. There are some interesting names, and it might be tempting to rush out and try to trade for one of these batters or snag him out of the free agent pool. But at Baseball HQ, we always want to assess the why of the performance, and specifically to check if any big gain is being driven by some improvement in skills, or if it's more about a change in luck. Look, for example, at the top name on the list, Oakland catcher Derek Norris. Norris is hitting 343 this year, but that's 117 points ahead of his combined 226 batting average in 2012 and 13. The first thing I look at for batting average outliers is expected batting average, or XBA. That's an HQ metric that combines several aspects of BA production into a single value we can compare directly to actual performance. In this case, Norris's XBA is 294, a good indication that his 343 current batting average is not entirely supported by underlying skills. One of the components of expected batting average is contact rate, which is the percentage of a batter's at-bats in which he doesn't strike out. 
Contact rate is a core metric for offensive success, and Norris has raised his from 68% in 2012 to 73% last year to 87% so far this year. Now, anything over 80% is good, and anything approaching 90% is elite. So Norris's contact rate and its growth are very positive signs. So is Norris's hard contact index, which measures how often he has hit the ball hard this year. 100 is league average, and Norris's 109 is another positive sign, especially coming after two years where he was slightly under league average. So far, so good for Derek Norris. But I also want to look at his hit rate, or batting average on balls in play, which you might have heard referred to as BABIP. Norris's hit rate this season is 37%. That's well ahead of his 30% mark last year and his 26% rate in 2012. That's an indication he might have been a little lucky so far this year. A few dunkers in the outfield dropping in for hits and a few grounders sneaking through the infield. But we do have to acknowledge Norris is also hitting the ball harder and more often than in those last two years, so there's very likely more here than just hit rate luck. Overall, I'd be optimistic that Norris will continue to be a solid batting average contributor. Again, I don't expect him to be at 345 for the full season, especially since he's a catcher, and wear and tear behind the plate really wears a guy out, unless he's Joe Maurer. And for a really complete analysis, I'd also look for changes in a player's ground ball, line drive, fly ball percentages. If I were looking at home run outliers, I'd change the performance to a rate, like home runs per 500 at-bats, then analyze the performance using fly ball percent, power index, and hard contact index. Now let's look at Ricky Weeks of Milwaukee. He's hitting 323, 101 points ahead of his last two seasons. But here I see plenty of cause for concern. Weeks' expected batting average is only 257, more than 60 points below his average so far this year. His contact rate is still under 80%. His hard contact index is actually lower than the past two years, and his hit rate is up more than 12 percentage points over last year, with no reason. I'd be very worried about Weeks' capacity to continue an elite batting average. Other batting average overperformers I'd be cautious about include Lorenzo Cain of Kansas City. He's managed to get his contact rate up over 80%, but his hard contact index is way off previous year's performance. Ichiro Suzuki of New York has a hit rate of 45%. That's 16 points higher than last year, and his contact rate, which was elite back in his salad days, is now around the 80% cutoff for regular players. And Adam LaRoche of Washington has skills that are about the same as the last couple of years. His contact rate is still below 80%, but his hit rate is up 9 points from last year. Besides Norris, batters whose overperformance in batting average looks supportable include Minnesota catcher Kurt Suzuki, whose hit rate is up, but only into the normal 30% range. He has an elite contact rate this year, and his hard contact index is above average this year and was above average in 2012 and 2013 as well. And Justin Morneau, his contact rate is all the way up to 88%, and his hard contact index is back up into the 120s, which is where it was when he was an MVP candidate and an MVP winner. I also looked at these batting average outliers for underperformers, and while there's no time to discuss the analysis in detail, you can look for some bounce back from Adrian Beltre, Jose Reyes, and Joey Votto, assuming his knee is not causing trouble. As for the rest, well, there's an expression that says caveat emptor, which goes back to when they were playing fantasy baseball in ancient Rome. It means let the buyer beware, and I couldn't have said it better myself. 
For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes edition for May the 23rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 36 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch News analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our regular Friday talk with Todd correspondent, of course, Todd Zola. And our HQ Matchups commentator was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt. I have a research story on the site this week combining pitcher velocity and other metrics in search of a better predictor of performance. And of course, I always hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. But more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in four days with our Tuesday Tout Edition, featuring Ron Chandler, the founder of BaseballHQ.com and the monthly fantasy baseball game site, ChandlerPark.com. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.